Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And, and we're, we're going, going round, round Springfield. <laughs> It'll never work somehow. I was going to say that was the best one. Are you kidding me? I don't know. I think that maybe (laughs) there's always been a delay that we're unaware of. Because I say, like, you know, as a drummer, I have to say, I have quite good rhythm. (laughs) (laughs) As a drummer? Now, Allie, you start every conversation with that, musical-related or not. (laughs) This food's not very good. (laughs) Well, you know, as a reminder to anyone who's listening to this podcast, uh, years after it came out, we are, of course, coming uh, during the time of lockdown, where Julia and I have not seen each other's faces in so, so long. and we will only get worse and worse of that intro because that's part of the charm. I think so. I think that if people wanted a perfect podcast, they'd go over to Radio Lab. They don't want us. <laughs> they don't want that over here. They want the loosey goosey peek behind the curtain, all the tech glitches in the world. <laughs> um, that's what we promise. And that's what we deliver mostly every time. And we have such a great guest today, um, as you guys listening know, that we are wrapping up our 20-episode season of this special uh, podcast, Round Springfield, um, our spinoff podcast from our previous one, Everything's Coming Up Simpsons. And of course, we are st- we started with a bang, we're ending with a bang. I'm so excited about our guest today. Um previously a guest on Everything's Coming Up Simpsons, um, way back when we were on another podcast network, which we shall not mention <laughs> now, but he is back. Uh, he is a writer, a producer, a director, a sometimes actor. Um, he's got credits <laughs> <laughs> ranging from uh, Frasier, Malcolm in the Middle, so many other shows that we are just going to dive in and talk about. Um, he also wrote the Mike Myers segments for the MTV <laughs> Movie Awards in, I believe, 2008, which I'm dying to hear about. Um, please welcome Jay Kogan. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Although you did make me miss Jad Abumrod a little bit <laughs> with your introduction. We can we can pipe him in and edit. Radio Lab's a good show, for God's sakes. It's a good show. It's, it's a good show. Uh, does it have, like, seven different audio tracks happening at the same time? Yes. Do you want that? Also, yes. Yeah. People like it. People like it. Maybe we should just listen to that now and just scrap the rest uh, of the interview. I was also impressed in your introduction as you're talking to future generations, reminding them that the what it was like in the pandemic – what optimism to think that future generations won't still be in the pandemic. So. <laughs> I'm white knuckling optimism. That's the only thing I have going for me in this pandemic. So <laughs> if you want to get on this train, toot toot. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point, Jay. I, uh, I truly am so not thinking about the possibility of this all uh, ending uh, and returning to a sense of uh, improved normalcy um, where we all have like, not only is the pandemic over, but like we all wake up listening to this one Simpsons podcast as part of our routines and it's become (laughs) worldwide famous. Um, (laughs) Jay, we had you on the podcast uh, a few years ago and we're happy to have you back. Um, The purpose of this uh, podcast rather than our last format where we would kind of geek out about the episode and get a, a specific episode that you chose and um, 
get to know kind of what happened behind the scenes. We're interested in all of the uh, kind of your origin story for starters, but also uh, the ups and and hopefully some downs uh, of your writing career because it really helps us and our <laughs> and our listeners know. Downs, wow! You we wish would... me downs. That's a drag. All right, all right. I get it. I get it. <laughs> to humanize you, yeah, to also it. boost our own self esteem, um, right. as as we can feel superior to you. That is essentially the goal. <laughs> <laughs> so last time we talked to you uh, a little bit about your origin, because it's impossible not to, because you have a very cool dad, uh, which uh, oh that origin story. I thought you were going to talk about when I got bitten by a radioactive spider. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. we can talk about no. that too, but hasn't that story already been told so many times? It is true. <laughs> yes, my father is a uh, is a comedy writer. That made it real easy for me to become a comedy writer. If he was a cobbler, I'd be a cobbler. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I knew of Arnie uh, Kogan because I uh, briefly was uh, an editor at Mad Magazine. I have grown up loving Mad, and and uh, y- your dad did quite a lot of uh, parodies and a ton of great work. And what uh, I, we'd love to kind of know, like, what was that like? What was your mom doing? I, I think you mentioned that your brother was a musician. It seemed like you guys had a really artistic, uh, funny upbringing. All right. Well, um, my I didn't have a brother that oh I know about. God. So there's that. My, <laughs> was it your son that was a musician? Then? My son is a musician. Yeah, that's where it my is. Son Charlie, <laughs> a musician. Uh, and he's re- very good. He's also a comedy writer. He writes comedy too. So there you go. So who knows what he'll be when he finally <laughs> lands uh, somewhere, or maybe he'll do all of these things. Taking but, um, Weird Al down a peg. Is what I <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't take Weird Al down. He's so good. I know. <laughs> He's the last good person we have in this Exactly. <laughs> so here, so I started out with a great advantage. So this is not going to make you guys feel fabulous <laughs> about your own lives because I grew up in Los Angeles uh, with a father in comedy writing who is not only a writer for Mad Magazine, but also a lot of really good TV shows. And yeah. I, I got to be on the set of TV shows and see how they worked and see you know, just what that, what show business looked like from, you know, behind the camera and, and it looked really fun. Yeah. So I, I got a, a good dose of that. And so I knew from a very young age, like, I like that. I want to do that. And I had a real example in my, my house of somebody who did. So it didn't seem that daunting to sort of try. How young are we talking and how uh, frequent was it that you did get to visit? I know that a lot of people who have parents in showbiz or music or anything sometimes have the story of not really getting to see their parent too much because it could be a demanding shift. But to be able to see it and then find all the positives in it is super exciting. So uh, I'd love to know more about that. Well, both are true. I was I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s, and that's the time when fathers weren't around anyway. So I didn't see a ton of my dad, true, but I did get to see a lot of the shows that he worked on and go visit him at shows. So when, yeah. as early as uh, when I was five years old, I was on the Dean Martin show. It wow, was a Christmas wow. episode of uh, Dean Martin where they wanted kids around. So me and my sister uh, were invited to spend the day at the Dean Martin show and be there for rehearsal and then also be there for the taping where Dean Martin and an actor named Dennis Weaver, who played McLeod, yeah, uh, we're gonna sing a Christmas song, and so I just sat around with all these kids of crew members and writers and stuff, and 
it just seemed like what a, I got out of school and it seemed like a fun play date and it seemed like people <laughs> were having fun. And, and really that was the moment I thought, I want to do this. Wow. I didn't yeah. see my dad around. I just saw people on stage having fun. And I said, this is great. So really from an early age, I was sort of committed to show business at that point. And as I grew up, I, I got committed to comedy show business where I would, I would listen to every comedy record I could get a hold of. That's what people listened to back then <laughs> to find their comedy. I watched every TV show that was on TV, which was a lot, uh, you know, shows that were on syndication and shows that were on uh, live action. And, and I just educated myself about what was out there, movies and old movies. And uh, I got informed about what stuff was out there. And I also tried to be, in, you know, a performer, an actor as a kid. I acted in a few things. I tried to do stand comedy when I was 16. I joined an improv group in uh, Los Angeles called the Groundlings when I was 16. That's a big deal. Groundlings is huge. Yeah, it was great. In terms of the shows you're watching and then also acting uh, or, or performing in some ways, um, I saw that you uh, appear in Newhart and the Bob Newhart show. Um, yes. We are huge fans of Bob Newhart, mm -hmm. and that is very exciting to see. Can you talk about what that experience was like for you? Well, again, it's pure nepotism. My father wrote on Newhart <laughs> and the Bob Newhart show both. There was a part in the Bob Newhart show for uh, a character named Jay that my father wrote. Uh, so it wasn't a coincidence that I got a chance to audition for it, which I did. And uh, I think the producers of the show, Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus, were inclined to give me the part because I was their friend's kid. So I got to be in an episode of the Bob Newhart show as a kid who was going to go see Jerry the dentist. Oh, my God. Jerry was so busy. And uh, that, that I had to wait outside in the waiting room. And Bob Newhart, the, the core of the episode was Bob Newhart's business was doing very poorly. Mm -hmm. And he was losing patience. And the receptionist was saying, ah, the economy is horrible. It's, it's happening to everybody. Don't worry about it. Meanwhile, Jerry, the dentist's office is overflowing with kids. Yeah. And Bob has <laughs> nothing to do. So I'm sitting out there and Marsha Wallace offers me a magazine. Says, you want to read a magazine? And I said, no, thank you. And Bob Newhart just stares at me and says, you want to talk about it? Aching, <laughs> aching for a patient. Uh, so that was it. It was just that, that quick. And then I had another bit when I was in my teens. It was about 10 when I did that, 9 or 10 when I did that. And then about, I don't know, 10 years later, I was on the Newhart Show. My dad was a co-executive producer of the Newhart Show. And uh, I was in the Groundlings. And another Groundling friend of mine was on that same episode where we got to be in a typing class. But you know, fun. You know, that, all that stuff was fun. Yeah. I mean, and again... I was very, very lucky to have a father who somewhat encouraged me, but, you know, not, not all that much. You know, he's sort of – he was wary of show business too. So. Yeah, and, and there's certainly a, a world in which you are not interested in it or you're not good at it, and right. that's not the world we're living in. So, you know, uh, having the lucky breaks as uh, they kind of occur for all of us don't really get you far unless you're also talented. They get you, they get you part of the way. I think there's like <laughs> having an open door. People give you chances. So you right. have to be, you have to prove yourself at a certain point, prove yourself shitty, like for certain things. But overall, you do have to actually bring something of value when you're later on. When I try to be an actor, stand up comedy, uh, comedian and other things, I, my dad wasn't involved. So then I had to sort of do it myself and see mm -hmm. if I was good enough. And at some points I was and some points I wasn't. Like I was, 
I was an okay stand-up comedian. <laughs> it was not great. <laughs> I relate. <laughs> I didn't have a a persona that I could really attach to. My I had a, I was doing a bit mm-hmm. where I was I was 16 to 17 years old, and I would come out in a tuxedo saying, "These kids today." I was like. A- <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's a good bit, but it's not, you can't build a career on it. It's more like a sketch. Absolutely. But that's, yeah. so I had a, I had a sketch of an idea. What was the um, scene of stand-up comedy at that time? And do you feel like, like, how is it different than what you perceive it to be right now? I mean, we had, and still have in Los Angeles, multiple platforms for stand-up comedians to perform. The Comedy Store, the Improv. Mm-hmm the Laugh Factory, and there were like 40 others. And there still are in in LA, but there were also all across the country. And, you know, I people, giants of stand-up were coming out and doing, working the club, you know, like Bill Maher and um, uh, Michael Keaton was a stand-up comedian. And right. uh, David Letterman was a stand-up comedian. And Jay Leno was a stand-up comedian. And Jerry Seinfeld and Richard Lewis and Eddie Murphy. And I mean, there's just like endless amounts of people that were great and who have continued to be great. And it was a a real golden age. And I think, you know, that's still happening. I think it's harder to make a living as a stand-up these days. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, But, but it was, it was, it was happening. How did your foray into stand-up affect your writing career? Did it deepen your ability to write dialogue that was sharper or did it affect it in any way that you felt was a direct link? I would say that being part of the Groundlings was a much more direct link to mm-hmm. being a better writer. That 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 improvisation and scene work was a much more direct line. Like jokes, telling jokes is is an important part of being a comedy writer, but it's not the most important part of being a comedy writer. The most right. important part of being a comedy writer is to be able to tell good stories, mm-hmm. uh, right. and the stories are the main hardest thing to break. Then after that, sort of figuring out interesting characters. Then after that, telling good jokes. Jokes are the most replaceable part of any comedy Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that uh, uh, working at the Groundlings where every – you keep getting situations that you're not in control of and try to make a story out of them and realize that every, every story could be a good story. <laughs> right, every right. Every story has the potential to be a good story or a shitty story depending upon <laughs> how you tell it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a real lesson and continues to be a great lesson. It also helped in the world of a staff writing where a joke is thrown at you or a, excuse me, a situation is thrown at you and you have to think of a funny joke or a funny response right there and then there. And that's kind of the muscles that you develop during improv. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I just definitely think that for people right now who are trying to start out, uh, especially if you're new to a um, to the city that you're living in, um, obviously things are slightly different these days, but there are still ways that you could be working and finding improv groups uh, online, I assume, or something. Because- they're, they're still out there. Lots of improv groups were out there. I mean, I mean, before the world ended, UCB was a very popular thing out here. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Million people were doing that, and there was UCB writing labs and UCB sketch nights, and all of that was, I think, really helpful to develop uh, an incubator full of really fun, interesting people. But mm-hmm. yeah, 
there's a lot of um like uh diy scenes too that have popped out like even further from ucb there's this really great place uh, or was a really great place before the pandemic called the clubhouse um which oh, yeah. was this like student funded space that was kind of on the bridge of silver lake and um los feliz but they'd have improv shows there they'd have classes there there's so many resources especially in los angeles but i can also imagine in little other pockets of cities around the country there's always going to be that kind of scene and during the pandemic i've seen a lot of specifically stand-up i haven't seen a lot of like online improv shows (laughs) but um stand-up shows have you really i have i participated in a few yeah did you what was that experience like fun Oh my That's god! Awesome. So much fun. Good. Thank God. Yeah. No, it happens. I mean, you're stuck with not being able to do space work together, right? But you can do space work, you know, in your own little window. I yeah. love that. And you just have to be still be listening. Overlapping dialogue is a little hard, but otherwise, right, it's really right. fun. I, I, I wanted to say one thing to touch on what you um, described with the difference between improv and stand-up and sort of deepening like characters and, and telling stories. It reminds me of a story that I heard a while ago, and I'm going to butcher it, but whatever. It's, I'm going to just describe it in, in very vague specifics, but there was like a taping of Cheers that happened and there was like one particular joke that got a really big laugh from the audience and you know like one writer turned to another producer or something and said like that is a really really funny joke and whatever the producer said that joke took three years to set up (laughs) (laughs) those yeah i don't know the specifics beyond but i think about that all the time when i'm writing myself and how like i completely agree with you like jokes are so replaceable and if a joke is particularly replaceable you know then it's maybe a hollow premise to to bank on but if you have like the jokes that are really resonate they come from that like three years ish of setup of creating these characters that are really really defined and um the audience understands them and that's what makes them laugh harder that they understand oh this is only a joke that could be told through this person's lens and i try to emulate that as much as i can Jokes that come through character are usually better jokes than yeah. like puns or things that come out. The, you know, I mean, the the greatest jokes of all time are are often nonverbal jokes because the audience <laughs> is ahead of the the joke yes. itself. They know right. the character so well. Niles on Frasier, that what Niles is going to say before he says it <laughs> is a really funny moment for the audience. They they laugh in anticipation of what he's going to say, because they know the character as well as the writers. It makes me think of a a lesson I learned early on of, um, you know, try to leave out as much as possible, try to leave out like hyper-specific pop culture and don't make pop culture like just referencing it as the punchline to your joke, because, you know, it's going to be like hanging around as long as a Snapchat. (laughs) It's going to, you know, be the first thing to be forgotten and it's going to date your script And what you want all the time is something that's evergreen and something that's going to really resonate, you know, and yeah, yeah, it's it's just setting yourself up for failure and also referencing referencing culture is not creating culture. So you have to kind of like, you know, consider all those things as you're putting together your script. Right. But I mean, and and then balance that with your characters are living in a place and a time. So you can't completely devoid of things that are happening in the, you know, in the zeitgeist and and what's going on in the culture and, and you can't 
you can't pretend like it doesn't exist either. Right. So it's of course, Simpsons, you know, referenced pop quite culture. Famous, quite famously has the best <laughs> pop culture references. <laughs> yeah, but I also feel like the jokes are constructed in a way where you can still laugh even exactly without knowing. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's something that we talk about a lot as fans uh, who who were quite young when the show was out, uh, if even born. A lot of the jokes that were references, we didn't get the references, but right. still loved the jokes. And then you get that extra. Uh, yeah, you get to understand it when you get older. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Mm-hmm. But they were, you understood kind of what the situation was. And so yeah. you can generally speaking, get the uh, reference. And same was true with me growing up with other car- Bugs Bunny cartoons or Mad Same Magazine here. or a million <laughs> kind of references. I didn't, I got to read parodies of movies I wasn't allowed to see on Mad Magazine. So yeah. yes. I didn't know that what they were parodying. I just read the parody and the jokes. And yeah. And, and then years later, I got to see the, the movie and said, like, oh, that's Humphrey Bogart. Okay. I get it now. <laughs> I've, I've shared this uh, story, I think maybe once before, Julia, but, um, and it's a, a little distasteful. But uh, I don't think anyone listens to this uh, with their kids. But uh, in Wayne's World, which I was uh, has stayed one of my favorite movies, I remember I was pretty young. I was like 11 or 10 asking my dad for clarification on a joke. And I said, okay, I know that it's a dirty joke. He says, I'll have the cream of some young guy. And I know that he's saying I'll have the cream of some young guy. But what does it mean? <laughs> and, he, and he said, I can't tell you that. <laughs> and it was something that I only recently got, despite it being a movie that I was unhealthily wow. obsessed with for years. So, it, And it's weird to understand uh, an adult joke when you get older um, and to know that you always loved it. Like, it's very odd. Even the song, um, which is uh, in a different Mike Myers movie, but in Austin powers which i'm also obsessed with uh never really understood the meaning of uh the song touch myself i just thought it was like you know like i touch my arm when i think about you (laughs) (laughs) how old were you well i i I understood touch myself in uh i remember like the place i was like i was in like seventh grade and or yeah seventh or eighth grade in the middle of um singing it in a production like during the break of a production we were doing of guys and dolls and i remember like singing it to the castmates and being like oh my god (laughs) and uh and just then telling everyone but this is the same time that the song milkshake was popular sure and uh i remember some boy saying you know it's not really about a milkshake i'm like yeah i know (laughs) that one i know (laughs) now were you Adelaide or Sarah Brown or one of the hotbox girls? (laughs) I was Adelaide. Okay, there you go. Good Um, job. Yes. Good job. Um, (laughs) And look at you now hosting a podcast. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) But yeah, so uh, we were kind of, uh, we got into this topic just uh, in terms of the quality of writing and how some shows like The Simpsons can really nail uh, pop culture references and and all of that jazz. But one of the other things um, I wanted to talk about just briefly um, in terms of Bob Newhart is just in case any of our listeners have not seen the Bob Newhart show. I can't speak to Newhart because I only know that Bob Newhart show is on Hulu. Go watch it on Hulu if you haven't seen it yet. If Newhart's there, do that too. But Bob Newhart show, so exciting because there's some shared DNA 
because Marsha Wallace, uh, who is so brilliant and funny, of course, you will know from The Simpsons, as uh, Jay mentioned, is the receptionist who's brilliant, of course. And as you also know, Simpsons listeners, Bob Newhart appeared on The Simpsons um, in, a, in a wonderful cameo, one of my very favorites. <laughs> I created Marsha Wallace's character on The Simpsons. So uh, years later, That's I got to insane. bring her into uh, the thing and say, remember me from that scene? And I don't know that she did, but. Oh, that's but, uh, amazing. But we became good friends. We became good friends after that. Can you talk a little bit about Edna and what went into that? Uh, Krabappel was basically uh, Mrs. Miss Crabtree from The Little Rascal. We needed <laughs> to have a, a teacher character. My my partner Wally and I were writing a script, and we th- there was no other Simpson scripts at the time. So we just <laughs> had to you know, like create a school, and then we created a a teacher and created Insane. classmates and all that kind of stuff. So we had to, we had to populate the world early on. And we just thought it'd be funny to use uh, the little rascals as a, uh, as a ironic formation <laughs> for the Simpsons. So that's a uh, crab tree became crab apple. <laughs> Very clever. It's crazy that, I don't know. I mean, this happens on, um, you know, at the be- at the origin of a show, obviously people need to flesh out uh, all the characters in the world. Uh, but it's it's really interesting to me, uh, and I assume to many others, uh, that it would have been not the show's creator. You know, like uh, I think a lot of time people think that a TV show is kind of fully created and formed by one right. or two people, and then once you get a writers' room going, uh, there's this very intricate bible uh, that exists. Yeah, uh, no. And and but you guys really are. Uh, you and Wally and, and the others who were there at that time uh, working on Tracy Ullman uh, and then onto The Simpsons are instrumental. Uh. Well, we were all flying blind and just having fun. I mean, was, Sam and Matt were, you know, we, we spent time talking with Sam and Matt about the tone of the show and what was going on. And then we, we actually, you know, we pitched out our story. Like we wanted to write this kind of story. We wrote an outline. And so it had gone through, you know, eyes of, of, uh, of Sam and Matt and Jim Brooks. But that's it. Those three wow. guys. Uh, and then we sort of wrote a script and then, and we didn't have a script to go by, you know, and so we just made up names and made up things. And, you know, we called Marge Juliet because we didn't have a name wow. for the mom. Oh, yet. my God. And, I can't uh, imagine that world. I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I'd be one step closer to her name wise. Yes. My life would be different. We thought uh, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, Homer and Juliet would be funny, but then uh, Marge uh, turned out to be what Matt wanted because his mom is actually right. named Marge, Margaret. And we named Abraham uh, the grandfather. Wow. wow. And we named because of the Jewish Abraham. <laughs> uh, and uh, not just other stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it just was fun. And some stuck and some didn't. I mean, Mr. Burns, we, we, we created Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns was not named Mr. Burns. Uh, and he wasn't qu- quite as evil as he became. <laughs> just like Edna uh, Krabappel wasn't as sour as she became. Um, right. So things change and grow over time. I mean, you, you introduce a character and give them limited space to be a character. And then over time, they get their own larger characteristics and jokes and that kind of stuff. What was yeah. that process in seeing the characters that you named and essentially created um, going on to evolve and become these different kinds of characters from that start? Was it surprising or delightful or is it just yeah. part of the process? Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, listen, we, we, we would write a script and then we'd give it over to other people uh, 
to work on and add to and change and it usually and it became better and right yeah so that when when things became better and better and better and better it's a good process <laughs> i've done <laughs> i've done the opposite process where i've written scripts and handed it over to people who made it worse and worse and worse and that's less fun right was that yeah. mostly in features or is that uh, still in that's tv happened in tv too in every place it's, it's uh, it happened on the Tracy Owen show. It happened in lots of places. So it, it just, it depends on, on the day, the, you know, what, what the, the wind, the, exactly, the people the in the room. <laughs> what people are thinking and what people, yeah. not everybody agrees on what the core concept of what's funny here is and all that other stuff. So it's, uh, it depends on who's in charge. If you're, if somebody's in charge who are, you're on the same page with, it's great. And when somebody's in charge who you're not on the same page with, you suck it up. Mm-hmm. Let's actually take a quick break where we all suck it up. (laughs) Video games. Video games. Video games. You like them? Maybe you wish you had more time for them. Maybe you want to know the best ones to play. Maybe you want to know what happens to Mario when he dies. (laughs) In that case, you should check out Triple Click. It's a brand new podcast about video games. A podcast about video games? But I don't have time for that. Sure you do. Once a week, Kickback as three video game experts give you everything from critical takes on the hottest new releases to scoops, interviews, and explanations about how video games work to fascinating and sometimes weird stories about the games we love. Triple Click is hosted by me, Kirk Hamilton. Me, Jason Schreier. And me, Maddie Myers. You can find Triple Click wherever you get your podcasts and listen at MaximumFun.org. Bye! I listen to Bullseye because Jesse always has really good questions. What did John Malkovich wear when he was 20? (laughs) I don't know how to describe it. There's always that moment where Jesse asks a question that the person he's interviewing has not thought of before. I don't think anyone's ever said that to me or acknowledged that to me, and that is so real. Bullseye, interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. From MaximumFun.org and NPR. And we're back, and death to the Simpsons. We're going to talk about (laughs) some of the other things that you've worked on in your career. Well, I worked on all those uh, Mike Myers movies that you were talking about. That was cool. I would really love to hear about that. I genuinely am such a massive fan of Wayne's World and Austin Powers, Mm -hmm. and I just same here. I think it's. I did work on the Wayne's World movies, but I did work on the Austin Powers movies. I want to hear. Uh, I, I would love to hear about that and kind of how you got connected and and everything. Well, I became friendly with Mike because he uh, he is friendly with Dave Foley. I and love Dave Foley. Oh, and you who did we both the, the wrong guys also. Yes, we did the wrong guy together, but we also were, were friends for for years. And uh, Mike was a fan of the wrong guy, and he said, "Well, I want I want that kind of jokes in my movie." So he asked me and some other folks to sort of help out and sort of punch up the movie. Like it was, it was not, it was fully formed. You know, the, the Austin Powers was a fully formed concept. It just different jokes, different moments, different scenes. You know, Mike's a perfectionist. He always wants to do more and get it right. He has sort of a mathematical mind about this kind of stuff. And he always has, he needs systems and he uses all kinds of uh, formulas and systems and things. That's how, that's how his mind works to create funny chaos. So, he would give us weird, interesting assignments of, you know, look at a scene and say, 
add a joke here. I just don't have the right joke for this or for that. So a bunch of us would try and some of it would get in and some of it wouldn't, but it was just fun to be there. And, you know, that, I mean, making fun of James Bond and that <laughs> whole style of, of, uh, of sixties fun is no one had tapped into that. It was just, that's all Mike. Mike just said, this mm-hmm. is, this is, this is ready. This is ripe. I'm going to do it. And he did it. And the same thing with uh, Wayne's World, you know, to tap into suburban teens and that kind of stuff. He's just uh, yeah. was very good at that. The Mike Myers movies are so insanely quotable. And really, uh, both of those really created like huge, just a, just a culture of yep. people talking that way after. I mean, it was already reflecting a culture that existed, but perpetuated and created its own right. world. It's sort of like um, a a proto-viral sensation in that way of catchphrases sort of taking over from playgrounds to offices. Same yeah. with The Simpsons, the same idea. We, we stole from the past to create a future. It's interesting. Were you on set for the first one? And yes. you were able to kind of see it come together? What was that yeah. experience like? It was, I mean, it's like going to see any movie. It's long and boring and dull and you have no idea what you're watching until you actually see right. the movie and go like, oh, that's what they were doing. That's <laughs> awesome. No sense that you were about to change the world? None. None. Same thing with The Simpsons. No idea. You just didn't know. You didn't have no idea. Just, just, you're just trying to make the funny and see if it, right. you can do it. I think it's better that way. I mean, what great works have actually come out of people being like, this is a great work, you know? I don't know. I Listen, I was on the set of the Austin Powers movies and the set of Love Guru, and I had the same feeling on both. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that's what's so interesting about The Simpsons. And this is obviously a, uh, this has been talked about many times by many people, probably more uh, interestingly than how I will bring it up. But it is so fascinating just that, you know, there are people like you who are uh, bringing what you knew from your real life and uh, older television into The Simpsons. And then there are people who are writing on it now and who love it now who were raised on The Simpsons. And that really informed their comedy. And it's so interesting that a show could last so long that uh, you have people that were raised on it now able to actually write for it. You know, Julia got to write an episode, which is uh, amazing and so cool. And she, you know, like like a lot of our listeners, uh, were raised uh, on the show. And it's so fascinating how, how different the um, lifestyle can be of a Simpsons writer just because of how long it's gone on. Yeah, it's very strange. It very is. strange. Yeah. I imagine it's strangest for you because and and those you were working with at the time uh, who are no longer there just to have uh, watched uh, what it has become. It's kind of like leaving high school and it's the class that you left still goes on. So, so like <laughs> right. you, you were there if you were eighteen and left, and then you went back and you're in your fifties, and the same people are are kind of there still, <laughs> still having their senior year, and you go like, oh. That's weird. (laughs) So it's very strange, but uh, it's great. I mean, listen, I think it's fabulous. I still watch the show. The show is good. The show is funny. The show is great. Mm -hmm. I do not accept the criticism that that, uh, later episodes are are not somehow less good than the current batch. I think that people have simply gotten used to The Simpsons. So things at the Mm -hmm. beginning seem more wild and interesting because they were at the beginning. But, um, you know, and, and memory fades the things that are especially <laughs> shitty, you know, everybody, everybody right. talks about the golden years of Saturday Live and there was really a lot of bad sketches on Saturday Live and the golden years of Saturday Live. Um, right, but, right, but right. 
but we we come past yeah. them. So yeah. it's all good. Uh, <laughs> People yeah. are even talking about the golden years of George W. Bush right yeah. now. So I yeah. fully <laughs> everything is in, in perspective. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> to touch on the Simpsons really quick on and like the crazy. 30 plus year legacy you know i always think of when matt was originally pitching the show he wasn't pitching a 30 plus year show <laughs> so when people come at them for you know sort of rejiggering the different histories of when uh marge and homer met and you know other things that have evolved in time it's like well it's a show that's never existed before and another thing like it will never exist again. So what he do you want? He show. He showed them a napkin. He really grew a family right. on a napkin. They said, we want, we want the life and hell, hell characters. He said, no, but how about these guys? And they said, okay. Wow. And that was it. What I would give to go back to the go-go 90s. Yeah. What I would give. I'm making visual decks. I'm making pitch oh, docs know. over here. <laughs> I'm sweating. To be fair, this was to... Uh, Draw interstitials on the Tracy Ullman show, not to create a whole right, show. But, right, but right. But yes. Uh, what I would give to draw interstitials. <laughs> yeah, I make decks too. They don't help. It's uh, decks. No, nothing yeah, helps. Nothing really helps. It's, you got to start new every time. Yeah, it's all new. <laughs> so uh, looking at your credits, there are uh, quite a few things that are geared towards like preteens and, and teens. You actually created a show that was uh, starring the kid from iCarly, who I had a crush on when I was younger. So that's exciting for me. All right. Um, <laughs> you had a crush on uh, Gary Trainer? Kind of. As okay, a kid, cool. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, he was the older brother. I was like, wow, that's so exciting. I can introduce um, you if you're done with this boyfriend. <laughs> I can introduce you. Um, yeah, no, but that, that show that I made with Gary Trainer called Wendell and Vinny was not intended for kids at all. It was a, really? the assignment of that show. I got a call from people who worked at Nick, Nickelodeon, and they they were running reruns of Friends at night. They're called Nick at Night. Oh, and, yeah. And it was doing spectacularly well. And they said, we want to have a show that we own that pairs with Friends. And I went, hmm. okay. And, and they said, it's – but and, and uh, uh, it can be an adult show. Yes, it's an adult show. And, uh, and I said, but we'd like a kid in it, but it's not about a kid. It's just, just some, some bridge from Nickelodeon to this thing, but it's really for the parents who still leave their TV on and Nickelodeon. I said, okay. So I made a show about three single people and, uh, one of them has responsibility for his nephew. And that's what the show was. And then all of a sudden, when they were about to air it, they said, Oh, we've lost our, our bread and butter shows at, uh, on our kids' time slot, and we want to move this show to your kids' time slot. And I said, you can't do it. It's filthy. The show that I wrote about right. it is filled with sex and innuendo, <laughs> and moms are going to be mad. And they said, we don't care. We're putting it on there. Wow. And they did. Wow. And I had wrote, uh, you know, we did 20 episodes of that show, and it was a bomb with kids because it, it didn't have any of the <laughs> – the, the the hallmark stuff you do for a kids show you didn't wow. you know, mm -hmm. it didn't it wasn't silly yeah. goofy exploding pot you know right the live action cartoon kind of starter sitcoms no one got slimed in my show so <laughs> it didn't really work so well that's so interesting I I can't imagine having such a huge change to something that you've been working on that was in production like happening that's yeah, really very strange. fascinating. How do you, how do you do that? How do you pivot? You don't. You just I mean, don't. You don't. I just make, I just made the show that I created and then 
watched it. I got 20 really good episodes. I'm proud of these episodes. Um, yeah. But I did not get a sh- I, I didn't. I knew it was not going to be successful or like I had huge doubts anyway that it was not going to be successful with young kids. But they kept saying, could you make it more of a kid show? And I went <laughs> I, in the middle of it after we had made a bunch and then we knew it was going to be in a kid's time slot. I had promised Jerry Trainer, your your crush. <laughs> that the show wouldn't be a kid show. He didn't want to do a kid show right after iCarly. He wanted to do right. an adult show. So I said, I can't do it without him quitting. So it became very easy to sort of stick to my guns and say, no, I got to do the show that we promised we would make that you promised that you would put on. And you promised I could continue putting on, even though you're putting in a different time slot. Yeah. What is that experience when you realize in real time that the show you're working on, I mean, maybe this is too dramatic of a term, but like is doomed. <laughs> I've worked on a lot of shows that are doomed. Listen, you Let's make talk you, about it. You make the best show you can. Listen, yeah. you, you work on a show that as good as you can. There are usually when a show is doomed, there's a lot of hand wringing from the executives, people trying to fix things, people trying to change things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can, but very rarely do you get out of the nosedive. It's sort of going to be what it's going to be. If it's not, if it didn't land, it's not popular, no amount of sort of small, teeny adjustments are going to move it. It's the situation and the actors and the characters that you've set up. And if they're not, uh, if they're not landing in a great way, they're not, they're not going to land in a great way. There's nothing. Right, magical right. that's going to happen. If there's one breakout character that actually is working and you can sort of push that more to the front, maybe that could help a little mm-hmm. bit, but I don't know. I mean, you have a better chance of being a middling show on the bubble and finding your audience than you are of being a really big disaster. Right, right. And you still go to work every day and put your best foot forward. I always think of it like um, the Titanic band. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> until they sink. <laughs> as an artist, my job isn't to be popular. My job is to make something good. So right. as long as I'm making something good or making it great or as good as it can be, then that's what I do. I honestly think that the fact that we live in an era of the streaming wars and so many different opportunities and platforms for original content to be generated, that it is actually a benefit to creating more harmonious work environments because there's less eyeballs and less pressure on, you know, a key primetime slot of shows that you have more opportunities to sort of be like, all right, you know what? Listen, the norm is that nobody watches anything. Right. <laughs> Nobody's watching our show. Um, if anybody does watch our show, then that's really great. And we can find the people and chances are the people that do watch our show, it'll really resonate with them. So to have that kind of optimistic spirit, I feel like, you know, is, um, is, is more what, what's happening right now with TV development, what I, you know, at least hope will happen more. And so I'm kind of just like looking at that as my North star. Right. Well, that's exactly it. You have to just do your best. You know, if you get a chance to make it, make your best show. That's all all you can do. There's no magic formula. There's no special way to guarantee success. There's listening to bad notes is not a way to make your show better. Right. Um, (laughs) Listening to uh, people uh, giving into your insecurities is not a way to make the show better. Do make the best show you can from the point of view that you created it. And yeah, that, that at the end of the day, I, I am really proud of the Wendell and Vinny or um, yeah. the, I like those 20 episodes. Love it. It's one of the greatest things they ever did. And I will always That's be proud great. of it because I love they're funny. 
There are people who saw them, love them, and they really like them. Almost nobody saw them, but the people who did love them. And I think that's great. Yeah, I loved it. It was, um, I was 12, so it was, I, I feel like it was a good age for, for me. I had just found out what certain jokes mean in Wayne's World, so I was. <laughs> <laughs> you were riding high on that. <laughs> I feel um, the same way about The Wrong Guy, which is another movie I made that didn't the really. The Wrong Guy is so good. It's Honestly, really quickly, just to gush about that, my current friend who I'm, I'm pitching a TV show with, and that will likely never go anywhere, but he and I bonded over how much we love The Wrong Guy, and that really got us thinking like, well, if we both love this movie, we could definitely write together because we have the same sense of humor so my my husband and i bonded over our mutual love of kids in the hall kids in the hall is my favorite sketch troupe and that honestly us like realizing that you know we love brain candy had a giant brain candy poster (laughs) that i still have was part of our love story yeah many of the people in brain candy are in the wrong guy so it all worked out yeah (laughs) another place that i um feel like I saw you uh when the when the movie came out was the aristocrats that was something that you were a part of yes yes I was what what was that experience like I remember watching that movie having not really had too much um knowledge going in uh about that joke so for me it was very informative and then also very funny and uh it was only partly traumatizing (laughs) movies like that when you're kind of um not in the scene and you know but you love comedy are so yeah. exciting because it really feels like you get a sneak peek into yeah, comedy geek um, it's a total comedy yeah. geek movie but i mean i love that movie and i think they did a great job uh paul provenza and and pen Gillette made that movie together and right they're uh they're i'm i'm friendly with both of them and they asked me if i knew the joke and i said yes and they said would you want to <laughs> can we come to your office and could you talk about the joke and i went okay <laughs> And I said, do you, I said, do I have to tell the joke? And they said, you don't have to tell the joke, but just talk <laughs> about the joke. Um, and I said, okay, because I didn't necessarily want to be recorded telling the whole <laughs> joke. Yeah. Right. But, I mean, it, it's really a, a smart look at, at what comedy is and comedy and how comedy can be like jazz. Yeah. And how, and, and how uh, variations on a theme and how different styles affect uh, so many different things in comedy and it's not about the premise of the joke and it's not about necessarily how filthy it is but more about just the variations on on comedy uh, yeah and I, I love that movie i thought it was genius me too mm-hmm. i'm not sure Same. if that's streaming anywhere but for our listeners that haven't gotten a chance to see it who could handle a little bit of inappropriate jokes it's very uh, inappropriate <laughs> <laughs> uh, then you should definitely maybe not that watching out. it with your family because <laughs> everybody's quarantined with their kids right now. But it, it, it is about there's a dissecting one joke. It's an entire movie dissecting one joke, and the joke itself isn't even a great joke. But it's exactly a, it's a it's an okay joke. But it's the way it's told that makes it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. there's like a really great campfire feel to yeah. it of this community. I love it. Jay, one of the things that's nicest uh, about talking with you is obviously it's exciting to talk to someone who's done so much and contributed so much to the work that we really love to devour. But also you yourself really seem like a like this comedy geek and you have so much respect for the comedy that came before you and your dad and, and kind of what still exists before we were recording. We were talking about some of the joys of of. TikTok and how, <laughs> <laughs> and it seems, you know, I, I think that a lot of um, people 
in the world, but also in showbiz, can be a little uh, negative about other things, and that could be fun. I certainly have uh, outgrown a lot of my snobbiest, high-fidelity-esque personality yeah. traits. Uh, they're yeah. still there, but <laughs> I used to really define myself by what I didn't like and ha- what I was cooler than. Right. And I'm not sure if that was ever a phase for you, but I really appreciate how positive and, and uh, you know, but still real you are about everything. And, and I just wanted to compliment you oh, on that. Oh, thank you very much. I, Patton Oswalt has a very good bit about that, actually, about coming to terms with like trying to be a snob and then realizing over time, like what, what was the point of that? Because, <laughs> right. you know, there, there are, you know, there are bands that like Nickelback is fine. You know, they're, just, <laughs> they're, they're just trying yeah. to make uh, a try. living. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And, and their songs aren't horrible. Like, it's like, I don't know, like who's picking on that. Who's decided that was bad and what was good and all that stuff? But <laughs> I am a fan of a lot of really great things, and I am, um, I do still watch the things sometimes and get really mad. And the, the things <laughs> that make me mad are things that I think are worthless that have somehow become popular, and that right. yeah, that does infuriate me because then I both because I feel like I am not part of the community of the world that understands that, and also I just. You know, in the same way that I, I, I get mad that there's entire 30% of the nation that, that thinks President Trump is a good president. It gets oh furious. It's sort of like, like how can, the same people. How can that be? <laughs> well, maybe not. I think that's a different Zen diagram, but still, there's always a certain amount of people that are willing to sort of, you know, uh, uh, extol the virtues of something that's just pure shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going back to comedy within that, you know, I, I feel like the only thing that and I guess, you know, film, TV, anything creative, the only thing that like makes me go, no, 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 thank you, is when I detect that something is disingenuous and it's kind of like prom king comedy or it's kind of hollow in its like, you know, or, or maybe bald faced in its ways to go viral or to like, you know, hit sort of going back to like referencing pop culture is not creating culture um things that are like not coming from this genuine place of wanting to connect with a community or wanting to tell a story for those things i'm like i can be as much of a high fidelity snob as i want because they're already losing but for everything else there is great stuff coming out everywhere and you just have to be open to it and to say that you know that things are better before things you know I, i I, I have no idea the ages of you. I mean, you've, you told me that you saw uh, Wayne's World when you were 12, so I guess I could figure it out. But we ha- all have, when we were children, we all had this sort of bright-eyed excitement for certain things that when revisited, if you took away the sheen, <laughs> we'd go, oh, my God, that's horrible. <laughs> so that's, I mean, it's, it's just some of it's just a matter of when you were born and right. what's good and what's not good. And so that taking taking that into consideration is also fine but then i like seeing funny things that people who are younger than me say this is great check it out and and lo- and being entertained by it it's fabulous and you know comedy hasn't changed that much it's not a different language it's the same <laughs> language so it's all it's all good and it still works for people you know in their uh, you know in their middle-aged people like me and young people <laughs> and kids it all can be still working. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the future of comedy. Me too. And we certainly need as much laughter in our lives as possible right now. So, And, and what you said is key. I would say this to everybody who's writing. Write your truth. Like, yeah. hey, write, 
write your truth, not just rip apart something, but write your truth. It's harder now to write your truth. Yeah. I think there's more restrictions on what you can say and what you won't, uh, even if you, you know, if I consider myself a woke person, but there's <laughs> very much restrictions on what I could say, even, even though my intentions are good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that a lot of um, aspiring writers get it mixed up when they hear like, write what you know, write your truth. And I think that a lot of them take it to a literal place when really it's just imbuing truth into your stories and being true to like real emotions that the characters oh God, yes. may be experiencing. I don't want to hear, I don't want to read a story about a struggling writer. I don't oh my God, <laughs> never again. Only Charlie Kaufman can do that and no one else. Yes. <laughs> but Jay, you're reminding me of something that you said on the last episode that you recorded with us that I've never stopped thinking about. Um, when we were talking to you about the reason why you left The Simpsons, you said something like, um, well, I ran out of stories to tell about my family. <laughs> and I've never stopped thinking about that. And it's been a really positive reminder of whenever I'm trying to generate stories and, you know, going into my own truth and going into my own background and trying to imbue that into, you know, whatever show I'm on, whatever characters I'm playing with of, you know, that being a strong North Star to go for because, you know, you can, there's never going to be any arguing with like, oh, this really happened to you. And then you find the comedy in the truth within that versus facilitating something that is like, you can already tell is ungrounded from the pitch. So yeah. I just wanted to thank you for, for planting that seed in my head. You're welcome. I mean, I, and I would say <laughs> that, that maybe it's not exactly true that you run out of stories about your family, but that's saying over and over again in the same style, in the same way, yeah. becomes tiring after mm -hmm. after a time. But new stories are generated all the time in your life. And I also think that it's true, although it's hard to sell, you can't sell this this way, but you can write a story about a fantasy planet that's 100% true because, yeah. because you're imbuing it with your real emotions, your real life character moments that have happened to you it doesn't matter that one of the characters is a giant volcano and the other one is a bee <laughs> yeah there's, yeah there's still the truth is still there with the relationship and what yes. you've experienced yeah you're not going off of plot you're going off of theme what right. is what about this theme is you know relating to you and that's how you're going to relate to your audience exactly i love that well jay it's time for us to wrap it up but we want to thank you so much for coming on the show it was really a pleasure to talk to you would there be anything that you would want to plug anything that is coming up or even just something that you've been loving watching that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I'm going to plug, I'm going to be taking a walk later <laughs> with my Great. mask. Nice. So that anybody who's in the Westwood area wants to come, <laughs> come around around four 30. Let's see. No, I'm, 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 and, and as far as what's, what's on, I just started last night. I was watching the last dance. So good. It's which, so good. Which was great. Um, I've been watching uh, what what we do in the shadows, which has been the great. Best. Amazing. Uh, I've been watching uh, um, the Toast of London, which is oh, been fun. Yeah. I, I I love everyone involved in that. That's my next watch. I think. Matt Berry, man, he's so, so fucking talented. Yeah. His music career and his, his writing and his acting. He's amazing. As a matter of fact, I started listening to the Toast of London because I heard Jesse Thorne interview him. Oh, wow. On, uh, hmm. on the uh, Bullseye show. And I said, oh, I don't know that show. And so I went to go investigate it. That's great. And uh, I love, uh, you know, there's, there's, so, there's, there's too much to watch right now. So people, people are offering me, like, seeing, I don't know, 
big list of money heist and I, <laughs> I have to watch Search Party and I have to – Search all, Party yeah. really is fantastic. Yeah. So I mean – so I know we're not stuff. helping yeah. <laughs> saying yes to all the suggestions, yeah. but they're great. I will promote this. This is something I do. On Fridays on Twitter, I do something called Philosophy Friday. Ooh. And uh, so if, you, if anybody wants to go to uh, at Jake Kogan, J-A-Y-K-O-G-E-N on Twitter, on Fridays, I answer your religious, moral, ethical, and show business questions. Amazing. Uh, and I give writers advice, and I give people life advice, and people give me advice, and we sort of have an exchange of, of ideas. Because I used to be a philosophy major before I dropped out of college. And so I'm trying to still use that stuff uh, in my real life. So oh, come, I love that. Come to That's Philosophy great. Friday. You got it. Well, thanks so much, Jay. And Julia, where can people find you? Thank you so much for asking. I'm actually oppressed on all the things. Allie, where can people find you? Thank you so much for asking. (laughs) (laughs) You can find me at Allie Gertz, and you can find us at Simpsons Pod. Yeah, and uh, Round Springfield is a production of Maximum Fun, as you know, but we like to (laughs) remind you at the end. We are a member-supported show, so go to MaximumFun.org slash join to contribute. Our booking manager is Jesus Ambrosio, and our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Swish. Smell you later. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.